Let's get into the Word tonight. Uh, I want to meet you in John chapter 1. I want to open tonight with one verse from the prologue to the Gospel of John. Um, if you used the old King James versions in your life, you always had the, the words in black and the words in red in your Gospel account. Uh, that's because the words in red were the words of Jesus, and of course the words in black were the words of either the author, the narrator, or of other speakers. Um, John is an interesting gospel in that almost all of the first chapter is written in black, at least the first three-fourths of it, and that's because John gives the most unique and I think complete introduction to Jesus. It's John that gives us the Repitching of the Genesis story where he tells us that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. It's John recreating Genesis with Jesus as the star character. Maybe if you looked at the Old Testament book of Genesis, who's the star character in the creation story, you could maybe come away and say Adam. But if you get to the new creation story, who's the star character? The last Adam, what Paul called the last Adam, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is introducing us to all kinds of things in his ministry. He's introducing us to the way to handle empire. He introduces us to the, the, the way to listen to the Father. He introduces us to the way to pray. He introduces us to the way to treat our enemies, the way to love our neighbor. He even teaches us who our neighbor is. We watch Jesus. We learn a lot about how to function in the earth. But we also learn some things that no one saw coming. When they were looking for a savior, in reality, they were looking for a leader that would overthrow empire, that would deliver them from Caesar. What they got in Jesus was not someone who pulled his sword and fought Caesar, but someone who bared his neck, so to speak, and took the death that was exacted upon him from the, from the systems of this world, but then showed us that victory can come through the most unconventional of ways. In other words, at Calvary comes a victory. What was a death becomes a source of life. But that's not all he showed us. John chapter 1, verse 18, this is such an incredible passage to me. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now the phrase, no one has seen God at any time, was a very Jewish, very Hebrew phrase playing off of the very text that they had to work with, that Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, or what they would have referred to as their Hebrew Scriptures, their Holy Scriptures. And in those Scriptures, they had learned that no one got to see the face of God. So John states a fact up front. No one gets to see God. But then John throws a curveball at his audience by saying, not only has no one seen God, but God had a son and the Son declared God. And the word declared there has lost its power for us because it sounds like something vocalized. I declare. But the word declared is out of, from the English, would be closer to the word, and this is going to sound like a real Bible college word, but that's unfortunate, but it's the word exegesis. And an exegesis is when you bring out what is in the text. When your pastor exegetes a passage, you bring out what's in that passage that might need, here's a word we use in secular terms when we say, let's unpack that thought, okay? That's a, a phrase we throw around a lot that just kind of means let's talk that out. Exegesis is sort of the basis of that. Let's talk that out. The word for declared is the Greek word exegete. The only begotten son exegeted the father. In other words, 
The, the son brought out what dad looks like. The son brought out what the father looks like. So you got two thoughts. One, no one's seen God at any time. And then John says, however, we've seen Jesus. And Jesus exegeted his father. Jesus unpacked his father. Jesus revealed his father. Jesus brought out of the storehouse all the information about his father. So, one plus one equals two. Haven't seen God's face, but I've seen Jesus. Jesus showed me what the father looked like. So if I've seen Jesus by default, I've seen the father or I've seen God. And when you get to John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And one of his disciples raises their hand and says, why don't you just show us what the Father looks like? And Jesus famously says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God looks like, don't go looking for a picture. Don't even go looking in the Old Testament Go looking at Jesus. You find Jesus, you get a clear glimpse of what God looks like. Now, I want to pause for a moment. You know my style. I like to give you some text, set you up with a thought, get you thinking a little bit. Let's pause that, put it on hold. Let's talk about those encounters with God. That's really what I would title tonight, encounters with God. What does that look like? Because I, I, love, I want to have encounters with God. I think you do too. I, I really think it's why you gave a few minutes on a Friday evening because there's a possibility you could have an encounter with God. And in an encounter with God, that would be something unique. That's something you can't just duplicate. Uh, that's something you can't just bring out of thin air. How would we have an encounter with God? And what would it look like if we did? So let's start with Old Testament thoughts first. Because the Old Testament is full of God encounters. But it's full of unique God encounters. God shows up in the garden in the cool of the day to talk to Adam and Eve. Adam, hide in the, Adam hides in the bushes covering himself with fig leaves. You almost have this comical encounter. It's interesting that God's first physical encounter with man is almost comic. Man's hiding in the brush. God's standing in the path going, where are you? I'm hiding in the bush. Why are you hiding in the bush? Because I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? You get this back and forth conversation. God's conversational. He's a questioner. He's not angry. He seems a little hurt. He seems a little scared. He's a dad that's lost his kids. And he's asking them where they are and why did you let somebody lie to you? And what are you wearing, son? <laughs> you, know, you didn't leave the house in that. That's not what I put you in. And so you get that, you almost get that maternal side of God right out of the gate in the Bible of this chasing our children down, not with a stick to beat them. But if we're carrying the stick, it's to hit whatever we think might have has our kid in its jaws because we're there to protect them. And that's our first glimpse of God. But the Bible then just blows up with God encounters. Uh, Abraham has God and two angels visit him at his tent. Abraham is so convinced it's God, he gets down on his face and starts to worship him. He's never seen God before. Would you just randomly get down on your face and start to worship a guy that knocks on your front door? And yet here's Abraham. When he sees him, he knows him. Jacob goes in the middle of the desert, lays his head on a rock, goes to sleep and has a dream. And there's Angels going up and down on a ladder and he sees God standing at the top. I don't know how he knows what God looks like, but he's positively convinced it's God because when he wakes up in the morning, he goes, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. I'm going to build an altar right here because I think this is the house of the Lord. And he calls it Bethel, Bethel, which in the Hebrew means house of God. 
Because he's convinced. I just looked into the heavens. I saw God. This is what he looks like. This is where he lives. And nobody thinks you're weird in the Old Testament when you talk that way. You get to just say that. I think I saw God last night and I started a church and called it Bethel. And that's where God lives. And the Bible just blows up with this over and over and over. And Moses is walking on the backside of the desert. And there's a flicker on the hillside and a bush burns, but it's not smoking because smoke means consumption and something's weird. Brush fires have smoke, but this one doesn't. So Moses says, I believe I'll turn aside and see this bush that burns, but is not consumed. And when he gets up there, a voice speaks to him out of the bush and says, slip your shoes off your feet. The ground you stand on is holy. And Moses doesn't run the other way like most of us would or get out his recorder to make sure he catches the audio. I realize he didn't have a recorder. But he slips his shoes off his feet and he does everything the bush tells him to do. And he never thinks it's weird or demonic. He knows it's God. He watches God heal. He listens to God confront his reality, his tragedy. He feels free to question God and receive questions from God in return. He walks down that mountain. He's a different man because the Old Testament has encounters with God. What I told you at the beginning, though, becomes more clear as you walk through the Old Testament that God doesn't keep doing it the same way. One time he's walking through a garden, another time he's in a burning bush, and another time he's in a dream at the top of a ladder, and another time he's knocking on your front door wanting to have lunch with you. And one time he's at the edge of a cave with Elijah and he's a still small voice. And another time he stands in the middle of a road like an angel and a donkey talks to Balaam because the donkey sees God where man can't. And the Old Testament has God showing himself however he can. And then comes Jesus. You take that composite body of all of it, all the way up to John 1, where John goes, no one ever got to see God's face. But even John knows it's not quite true. Because John has the Hebrew scriptures in his past too. And he knows there's been an Adam and an Abraham and a Jacob and an Elijah and a Moses. And what John means is that you don't see God like you see me. But John's not naive. He knows that men have been encountering God. In fact, John ran around with Jesus for three and a half years. And so John changes gears in the middle of the verse and goes, no man's ever seen God's face. But I saw his son. And when I saw his son, his son unpacked his dad constantly. His son exegeted his father. His son revealed to me what his dad looked like and sounded like and loved like and responded like until I hung out with Jesus long enough, I felt like I'd seen the face of God. All the way up to the resurrection. Go to John 20. Just jump 19 chapters. In the only gospel that says the two things I'm reading to you, by the way, only John says, no man has seen God at any time, but Jesus has exegeted him. Only John says that. And only John tells this story from John chapter 20, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. And he said to Thomas, reach your finger here, look at my hands Reach your hand here, put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And John is the first gospel writer to put that into words. And I don't want to be over dramatic, but I can't help but point this out with 
a spotlight. Nobody in the ministry of Jesus had dared to call him God until Thomas touched his nail-scarred hands and saw the resurrected Jesus and went, I just saw the face of God. When I watched Jesus pre-cross, I saw how God loved. I saw how God responded. I saw what God moves like. But when I see Jesus post-resurrection, I see God. God as me, resurrected into the earth, a brand new man, no longer old Adam hiding out on a bush somewhere wearing clothes, but a new man standing in front of me, still carrying the scars of who he was when he was on this earth because who he was when he was on this earth doesn't cease to be relevant any more than who you are on this earth will cease to be relevant when you get over there. But who you are on this earth is no longer who you will be forever in him. And Thomas goes, only God could do that. My Lord and my God, you must be the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not a God, little g, you are big G God. <laughs> I see him standing in front of me, and that is Jesus. Now, all of that's wonderful, great, well, and good, but there's a flaw in my message right here. There's a massive flaw in my message, and I'll go ahead and point it out for you because it's pretty obvious. I said to you, wouldn't you like to have an encounter with God? And everybody nodded their head because... Well, you wouldn't want to nod your head no, because that would be odd. But you'd nod your head yes, because why not if I can have an encounter with God? And then I introduced to you that in the Old Testament, God did a bunch of stuff. Any old way God wanted to to show God. But then here comes Jesus, and God shows the world himself through Jesus. And then Jesus comes out of the grave, and you get to touch him and go, there's God. And the flaw in my message is there's no physical Jesus here tonight to reach his hand out. And for you to grab a hold of it, because if we had that, well, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If we could but see him and behold him in his glory, we would be, we would know, as John said, uh, we, we, we would be as he is in this world. But even though that is a major flaw, it's not one that Jesus did not fix if we're paying attention. Because honestly, if he didn't fix that, in my opinion, it's a fatal flaw to Christianity. Now, let me tell you why I think it's a fatal flaw. Because a fatal flaw is something that cannot be overcome, that because it exists, there's going to be death to the structure. If there's a fatal fall in a building construction, it is a matter of time until the building falls. Because the flaw isn't a problem, the flaw is fatal. If your doctor says to you there's a fatal flaw with one of your organs, he doesn't mean you're gonna have some trouble. He means you're going to die. So when I say there's a fatal flaw in us not being able to see Jesus, I mean it. I think that if it were our only way to encounter God was to encounter him through the physical Jesus, it's a fatal flaw of Christianity because none of us get to encounter the physical Jesus and therefore all we just have is a head full of stuff. Maybe you got some scriptures, maybe you got some songs, maybe you got a testimony. Maybe you think you've seen a miracle here or there. But if the only way to see God is through seeing him through the physical Jesus, to touch Jesus, then there's no hope. But Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, 
plugs the fatal flaw. Because he knows where he's going. He's heading to Calvary. He's going to walk up that hill and drag his cross. And he knows he's going to die. And he's already prophesied he's going to raise again. He says, in three days, I'm coming back. So he knows he's going to resurrect. He actually knows how the story ends. And he knows that there's a flaw coming up in this faith that he's not going to be there forever. In fact, he exposes the flaw in John 14 when he goes, "Uh, I'm not going to leave you guys orphans. Because that's what it's going to look like, right? It's going to look like you've been left orphans because... He even says, I'm going to go back to my father and the glory that I had with the Lord before this began. I'm going to have that glory with him again. And there's that flaw. We're about to be left alone. There's no way that we get to see God. Now, before we go watch Jesus plug that fatal flaw, I want to just stay on this idea for just a second about encounters with God. I come up in Pentecostal charismatic churches where encounters with God were considered to be something you were supposed to have every single service, but those encounters were something that were supposed to happen in a highly emotionally charged atmosphere. Shouting, running, yelling, falling down, jumping up and down, spontaneous worship. And listen, I've been in, I I think, every kind of Christian service imaginable and seen a lot of stuff. I can't even really be shocked anymore. I don't think. I've seen some stuff. I say I don't think because there's always somebody coming up with something new. Like, have you seen this? Okay. I could probably do without seeing that. I can imagine. But a lot of our encounters with God were always built around emotional responses. But they, all, but they happened almost invariably in church. And what I mean by in church, of course, is in service, in the building, in singing, in preaching, in invitation time, worship time. Or they happened in your prayer closet, prayer meetings. And they were almost always accompanied by the outlandish. Because we, the stories that we emphasized was where God did big stuff. You know, seven days around Jericho on the seventh day, march seven times. When you get to the end of the seventh time, put the trumpet to your mouth and blast it as loud as you can. And the walls will come tumbling down. Well, if you build a theology out of that's how God works, you better get loud, (laughs) right? You better get loud. You better march. You better move. You better get on your feet. You better get ready because when God shows up, You want to be ready for what God's going to do. I'm not cutting those encounters down. I saw God do some pretty amazing things in those encounters. But for a long time, I thought that's all that God encounters were. That's not where Jesus plugs the fatal flaw. Like on his way to the cross, he doesn't go, I'll tell you, boys, what? If you really want to see me after this is over, buy a trumpet. (laughs) And march this thing out, man. And you get to the end of it, blast that thing as loud as you can, and the Holy Ghost will fall, you know? Because that was the kind of way we talked. The Holy Ghost will fall. He gives us some hint. He tells his disciples, if two or three of you gather together in my name, I'll be there in the midst of you. So he starts to lay some hints out. Like, listen, I'm actually going to show up in your midst. But in a world where they had him in the flesh, you can imagine that their first thought was, if we come together in his name, he's going to walk through the wall. Right? Because that's how he did at the end of John. He just walked through the wall. And you can imagine that that's probably what they thought was going to happen even post-Pentecost. Is we have a move of God. Uh, Jesus is going to show up in this room. He's going to walk through the wall. And when he does, then we'll know. That's how we'll see God. And yet on his way to the cross, I want you to go to Matthew 25. 
And I know that when we read stories like the one I'm about to read to you, we always do it, we pretty much do it all by itself. We, we read this as the sermon. Maybe this is our lectionary reading on a Sunday. We read this and then we preach this sermon. And that's beautiful. That should be done. But for purposes of this message tonight, I want to show you what I think is Jesus patching up that fatal flaw. It's Jesus giving us an opportunity to realize that we get to see God. Matthew chapter 25 and, and I want to begin reading, we could, we could pick this up about anywhere, but I want, to, I want to begin in verse 34. And I'm jumping into the middle of a story about Jesus judging the nations, but I'm heading towards what I believe is Jesus fixing this issue. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Skip to 45, just to put the proper cap on this text. He will answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And I believe that on the way to the cross in Matthew 25, Jesus fixes the fatal flaw of us waiting on a physical encounter with God by saying... You are going to encounter hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and imprisoned people. And when you encounter them, that's me. What I believe Jesus does on his way to the cross is show us that an encounter with God is not just found in a prayer meeting in a Sunday morning service, in a Friday night clubhouse. An encounter with God is any encounter that we come across His brethren. He said, when you encounter them, what you do to them, you do to me. Encounters with God are not something that we wait in a prayer line for. They're not something that we arrive at through three weeks of fasting. They're not something that we get because we bring in a powerful evangelist or he preaches our favorite sermon, or they sing our favorite song. Encounters with God are every time we encounter His creation on this earth. And we walk into the lives of those around us, those hungry, those poor, those strangers, those naked, those prisoners. And what we do in that moment is what we do with God. The reason I say that's Jesus plugging the fatal flaw is because that empowers Christianity to be real and relevant Every single place it would set its foot for time and eternity. That everywhere a man or a woman claimed Jesus and they laid their foot on the ground, they would encounter another human. And when they did, they had an opportunity to serve. And if they walked past that opportunity, they walked past that opportunity to see their creator. But if they accepted that opportunity 
And they picked up the mantle of their brother's responsibility. The stranger, the hungry, the thirsty, the imprisoned, the naked. And all of the things that those things could mean, not just literally, but spiritually and emotionally and physically and all of the things that they could mean and we take it serious, we have a chance to encounter God. When you encounter them, you encounter Him. Because you're not going to see Jesus with His nail-scarred hands, but you are going to see Jesus naked and hungry and thirsty. And Jesus said, you're going to look at me and go, when did we ever see you that way? We don't see you that way. He goes, when you do it to the least of them. You do it to me because my, the image of my father is found in the eyes of those that you see. Now, this is an Old Testament concept married to a New Testament Jesus. And what I mean by that is, look, look at Isaiah 1.17. This is the last place I'll take you. It's a good spot to land textually. But look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. God's command to Israel is quite simple. Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Notice that this has nothing to do with heaven and hell, by the way. Let me read it again. There's no heaven in here. There's no hell in here. There's no demons. There's no angels. There's no prosperity. There's no favor and grace. There's action on our part. Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Jesus is not reaching forward into a never-before-seen world before he goes to the cross to tell us how to live. He's reaching backwards. He's reaching backwards into the prophet Isaiah to go, here's what my dad, the dad I've been trying to show you my entire ministry, here's what my dad wants you to do. He wants you to learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. He pulls that from the past and he puts it right out in front of his disciples. And he goes, when you do it to them, you do it to me. You want to know what dad looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what Jesus looks like? Look at those in need. Look at those hurting. Look at those hoping. And that was Jesus not just plugging the fatal flaw. That was Jesus turning the whole system on its head. Going the way to get to the father now is not through sequestering yourself off becoming a monk on a mountain somewhere so that it's just you and Jesus. The way to see God now is through the eyes of His creation, the very ones He died to save. And in that, you encounter God every time you love your neighbor. And we've always struggled with this. They struggled with it in their day. Jesus told them to do it. The guy raised his hand and go, who's my neighbor? Because that's exactly what we want to know. Who's my neighbor is always us asking who we don't have to love. That's all that question means. Who, who, do, who do I not have to care for? That's all I really want to know. Don't tell me who I got to care for. Tell me who I can get by with not caring for. Who's on the naughty list? Who doesn't qualify? Because those are the ones I'm going to have a lot more trouble loving. If I can skirt that and just love these other people that are pretty good to me. And Jesus shot a hole in that and goes, when you throw a party, don't, don't invite the people that you know. Invite the people that you don't know. He goes, because if you only hang out with the people that like you, what good is that? That's a Jesus that's not as easy to follow. That's a Jesus that's showing you how to encounter God through your neighbor, showing you how to love them, how to see them. So when you see the image of those, you see the image of God. Here's what I mean by that. The Hebrew word for image is Salem, T-S-E-L-E-M. And, and Salem really, in the old Hebrew, had to do with um, idols, 
and statues. In fact, it's the word that is used when God says, make unto yourselves no graven image. Did you know that God uses the same word right there as he used in Genesis when he said, let us create man in our own image. And so God takes his own image and puts it into Adam and Eve. And in that, then when you get to the law, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt make unto thyself no graven image. Same Hebrew word. God goes, don't fashion an image. Why? Well, there's two basic reasons. Rabbinical tradition would teach us this. We can learn this from the Jewish community. Number one is you can't fashion anything because it's going to be inferior to God. God's better than whatever you can come up with. But number two, God already has an image fashioned, and it's you. So to create a graven image is to present something to God of less quality than God has created in the offerer. That no matter how beautiful, no matter how pretty you can sculpt it, it's not as great as the sculptor. That you would be giving God an inferior version by sliding an idol out there than you would by just sliding yourself out there. Paul caught that in Romans 12 and says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto the Lord, holy, acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Why a living sacrifice? Because you can't fashion anything as great as you. And what they meant by that was that you can't come up with anything to God that's as beautiful as his own children. Like, Mommy, here's my picture. Will you put it on the fridge? Sure I will. It doesn't matter how terrible it is and geometrically unsound. And no, tigers can't be that color and none of them fly. But we're going to put it on the refrigerator anyhow because you made it. But it can't possibly replace you. In fact... In fact, it's only pretty because it's you. There's a reason we would never hang this flying tiger in the art museum. Because it's terrible art. But not to mom. Because, not because they're so good at it. In fact, you don't bring your friends over and go, hey guys, come here in the kitchen, I want to show you this. Look what Sally painted for me at school. You don't do that. And we walk right past other people's kids' art on their fridge, and we don't ask, wow, who drew that house? We don't, because we understand the reason it exists. So there's a little bit of that in that whole image of God issue, that what we present to Him is never going to be what we are. And the only way anything could be acceptable to God is because of the offer, because of the image. But the thought process was that idols... Because Israel went through the land and they saw other countries and other countries made little statues, little golden cows and little golden gods. And and Israel was impressed because they got to touch the, the God. And so they asked God if they could do that. And of course God refused, but the first chance they had behind God's back, they made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. You know that story. And the problem with the idol is that idols were image bearers of God And this was the thought process. Whatever you did to an idol, you were doing to the God of the idol, the little G God. So if you offered it to an idol, you weren't offering it to that statue, you were offering it to the God. If you did it to the idol, you did it to God. Jesus borrows that. If you do it unto the least of these, you do it to me. What he's borrowing is 
these are my dad's creations. They're reflections of my dad. If you want to know what my dad looks like, open your eyes and look around. And when you do it to them, you do it to me. And when you do it to me, you do it to dad. You want dad's attention? Pay attention to his kids. And I found this to be vital in communication. Like we may not have much in common, you and I. We may have come from different parts of the country. I may not understand anything about your dreams, your hopes, your desires, your politics, your passions, or your past. We'll talk about the weather. That'll last 30 seconds. We'll be on fairly common ground. Doesn't take a real genius. I mean, you can feel if it's hot too. But if you want somebody, talk about their kids. And there it is. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, as long as you'll listen, ask questions, show some concern, you got them. Business people learned this a long time ago. They walk in, take a look around, find your kids on the desk on that photo, ask them about football, ask them about school. You know the game, you know the drill. I'm not talking about using, I'm talking about us having a common understanding that it matters. So when Jesus says, if you do it to them, you did it to me. If you do it to me, you do it to God. It's because they're images of my father. Never forget it. Don't overlook them. You want to know what dad looks like? Take a look in their eyes. That's his creation. Martin Luther said this, you have Christ in your neighbor. You ought to serve him for what you do to your neighbor. Indeed, you do to the Lord Christ himself. You have Christ in your neighbor and you ought to serve him because what you do to your neighbor, you do to Christ. Martin Luther didn't say that. Jesus did. Luther just changed the language. The fatal flaw might have been that we can't come in here on a Friday night and actually see Jesus. But I think for us to think that is our fatal flaw. Jesus plugs that fatal flaw by saying, everyone that crosses in front of you is a chance to see God. You can see God in their pain. You can see God in their hopelessness. You can see God in their dreams. You can see God in their frown. You can watch for God. Don't say you want an encounter with God and ignore His creation. For too long, the church... And we're all guilty of it because we're all part of the church. For too long, the church has asked God for revival, asked God for his presence, asked God to show up. And then when God does with people whose hair looks weird, their skin's not right, they don't live in the right part of town, they don't treat our property just properly. We don't want much to do with them. And God goes, I thought you wanted to see me. I sent you a couple. A couple chances to take a look at me. Go, oh, but God, you wouldn't look like that. And he goes, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. It's a fatal flaw. It's a fatal flaw for us to overlook that God's dropped a piece of himself into all of his creation. And so that is for whom I died. Her, him, them. Always the others, by the way. Start with the others. That's a good place to encounter God. <laughs> you want to see God go as far to the others as you can and watch for him because he's dwelling there. He's living there. He's waiting to be loved. He's waiting to be fed. He's waiting to be clothed. He's waiting to be understood. 
When we see them imprisoned, we try to help them figure out how they got there. We try to help figure out how not to have them there anymore. Jesus says, when you see them imprisoned, I'm the one imprisoned. When we see them naked, when we see them hungry, we have a different idea. But when we look to encounter God, we'll see it through the eyes of Jesus. Oh, I do not present to you that this is easy. In fact, I think this is what makes following Jesus hard. The easy part is like, accept Jesus, he'll make you righteous. You get to go to heaven when you die. How do you get there? Just believe on Jesus. You're going to die anyway. I mean, the dying part's coming. Just believe on Jesus. Jesus will do the rest. The problem is all the stuff that happens on your way to dying. All the people you encounter on the way to dying. All the people you got to love on the way to dying. All the people you got to forgive on the way to dying. All the people you got to turn the other cheek to on the way to dying. All the people you got to keep your sword sheathed when you badly want to pull your sword out. And Jesus is going, no, you live by it, you die by it. That's the hard part about following him. If he just let you do anything you wanted to on the way there, pull swords when you want, punch who you want, curse who you want, flip off who you want, cut down who you want, ignore who you want, and grace would get you home anyway. And guess what? I actually believe that. I actually do believe that grace will lead you home. But you'll leave a wake of hell on your way there. And we were saved for more than that. How do I know? Because Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, he did it to me. I know we want encounters with God. So do I. So do I. I had a young man ask me this this week. Say this to you in closing. He said, I'm really disappointed with myself. He said, I just don't believe and have peace the way I want to. Because I've been in this a long time. I should be farther along than this. And my consolation to him was, because he said, I want to be like the Apostle Paul who could get to the end of his life and say, I have fought a good fight. I've finished the course and laid my life down for Jesus. I go, because you're looking at Paul's snapshot the day before he dies. But Paul left you a paper trail. Because earlier in his life, he said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There's a Paul way back here in his life going, I don't know him like I want to. I got a feeling getting to know him is going to be some suffering. Someday I'll get there. I go, it's easy to cut yourself down when you snapshot at the end and go, look how he died in peace. And you forget that on his way there, he was praying the same prayer you are. Going, God, I just want to know you more. And I got a feeling that knowing you more comes at a cost and the cost isn't money. The cost might be loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgivable, sheathing my sword when I want to pull it. That might be the cost. I don't know the cost, but I know it's picking up that cross and following him, and that's a part of loving his creation. Bow your heads. I want to pray. I just, I want to, I just want to ask the Father, and I want you to ask the Father, for an encounter with God, but I don't want you to do it if you don't mean it, because that's lying. And I think that taking your untruth to God is worse than being silent altogether, because all he asks for is your truth. So you bring truth to him. You don't want an encounter with God, don't ask for one. If you do, then we ask for it. And as we ask for it, I think as we've seen in the word, what begins to happen is he begins to reveal himself the way he said he would. Father, I thank you tonight for this room. I thank you for what you've done in this room. I thank you for the power of the word. I thank you that it works. 
that as we watch you reveal yourself through the Bible and then we get to Jesus, something explodes in our spirit and we say, yes, that's what the Father looks like. And then maybe, Father, we take this hard turn where we say, but what does he look like now? How do I have an encounter with that God now? And then when we find out that it's how we treat the least of these, well, maybe we don't want an encounter with God. I'm not going to ask for an encounter with God for everyone in this room for them. I'm going to let them do it. Because I know that when I ask for those encounters, you put people across my path. I'd rather not cross my path. And usually I see you standing somewhere in the shadows winking at me, going, here's your chance. And Father, I wouldn't pray that on anybody. But I do pray it for me because I want to see you. And I want to see you at the expense of whatever it costs in loving my neighbor. And I know I'm nowhere near the end of the journey like the Apostle Paul. So I'm still making my prayers known that I may know him. <laughs> but I believe. And for all of those who believe as well, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.